all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're glad to be with you today, taking your calls during the hour concerning any kind of health issues that you might have. That's right. You can call into the program with any kind of concerns or questions about new medications, new diagnoses, or maybe some symptoms that you don't have a diagnosis yet, or maybe it's something you heard about you just want to verify with us. The number to call today to answer those questions is one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one 672 Or if you can't call us, you can always send us an email. You can send those emails to remedy at mpbonline.org. We do look at those emails and try to answer those as quickly as possible uh, to our listeners. We also like to share those with uh, the rest of our listening audience. From time to time, we batch those together, but we also share those in programs. We'll have some uh, today to share with you that are we think are going to be good for the rest of our listening audience to know. Uh, but you can do that anytime. You can also, if you missed a part of a program and want to hear the entirety of it, uh, please go to MPB Online uh, to look at uh, previous archive shows. So we do try to get those up fairly quickly within a day or so. And uh, that's a good way to keep up on what's going on. And if you miss a day, we know things come up uh, during the week. Uh, you can always go back and listen. If somebody else says, hey, I heard something on Southern Remedy that uh, you ought to listen to, that's a good way to, to go back and listen to that. So I'm glad to be with you again through Skype uh, in the studio uh, or, or via my office to the studio, different ways that we're all trying to stay safe and reduce the transmission of COVID-19, uh, but try to, to continue to get that information out there that you need about that. You know, we're looking at about 7,000 cases in Mississippi uh, across the U.S. now. Uh, you know, the total testing results for the U.S. were almost at were about nine and a half million people uh, that are that have been tested. Uh, global deaths, uh, you know, now are are about uh, nearing 300,000. That's not too unexpected with what we know with how this virus is transmitted. Uh, and uh, as things are opening up in most of the country, including Mississippi, slowly, we just want to advise people that just because things are opening up doesn't mean that you can totally uh, get back to doing what you uh, did before this. It's very important that as things open up that you take some precautions, and those are the same precautions that have been shared from state and local officials uh, as well as national officials, and those are things like washing your hands frequently, uh, avoiding uh, close contact with individuals outside your individual families. Um, if you are in high-risk environments, you may need to take some other pre uh, special precautions. Certainly, if you're in a situation where uh, it would be a little bit more difficult to 
maintain that distance of six feet between you and someone else wearing a mask, either a cloth mask or a, uh, another type of mask that can help prevent that spread of respiratory droplets that somebody would be coughing or sneezing with uh, from you getting that. And surfaces that are used frequently, it is recommended that you wipe those down with something like uh, that uh, a disinfectant. Um, anything with uh, alcohol greater than 60% in the ingredients uh, would be useful. Soap and water is just fine, though, to do to wipe down those surfaces that people touch frequently or places that somebody may have sneezed or uh, coughed. Dr. Jimmy, I wanted to insert a couple of mask-related things here. First of all, I saw something on a social media feed for making a homemade mask that I thought uh, was very simple and has turned out to be quite effective, and that is you take an old sock, clean, of course, and you cut off the top, the little stretchy part at the top, and then you cut a hole so that it's not a loop anymore. It's a long, you know, uh, kind of a, a thing, and then fold it in half and make a little snips at each end for your nose, and then you basically stretch it over your mouth and nose. And what I like about it is the elasticity of the sock. It holds it a little bit closer to the bridge of my nose, and so I don't have the problem that I've had with some other of the masks where your the condensation from your breath fogs up your glasses. This is a night tight fit against your nose. Uh, and so I found that that was an easy one to do and, and it's, uh, it's fairly comfortable. And like I said, it, it eliminates that, um, the idea of the condensation. Uh, my mask question is I've seen a number of people who wear a mask as more like a neck uh, decoration. <laughs> An accessory. <laughs> yeah. So uh, am I right in saying that in, in, in order for the mask to do what it needs to do, you need to have it covering your mouth and nose? Yeah, that's correct, Kevin. So, so what we're talking about is preventing the spread of those uh, larger droplets that are uh, that that are ejected from somebody who sneezed or coughed in a short distance. Uh, they don't hang around a long time. Uh, you know, there's some concern in certain environments that it may ha hang on a little bit longer. Uh, we may talk more about that a little bit later. But the mask is really there to prevent that from being transmitted from somebody else to you. Now, it's even better. It really, you're protecting other people more than you're protecting you. Unless you're wearing a, um, you know, a, a specific healthcare mask, and we don't recommend that because we need those supplies for our healthcare workers. But unless you're wearing that, it's not going to help you as much. You, you shouldn't have a false sense of security. Certainly, it's fine. The sock that, the method that you just, uh, you just described, that's fine, and that certainly will cut down your risk a little bit. But it's more of the risk of you, if you have it, transmitting that from somebody else. That's why it's important that as many people are wearing those, particularly in situations where you might not be able to maintain that six feet of distance. I think people are doing better. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to, uh, uh, to grocery stores a couple of times and to, uh, to Lowe's. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think people are doing a little bit better in that distancing. Certainly stores are trying to do that as much as possible with things on the floors to try to distance people from that. Um, I think for the most part, people are, very, are, are accommodating that with as much patience as they can. Um, but you really need to wear it. Right? If, you're, if you've got it around your chin, it is of no help. You might as well not even wear a mask. You don't have to wear it if you're not around other people. I see just the opposite. I see people who have this on. And they may be walking or running down the street, maybe getting some exercise on the weekend, uh, and they're not around anybody else within 60 feet. 
very little chance of you getting it that way. This is a person-to-person -person spread of the virus. You don't need to do that. If you're in your car by yourself, no need to wear a mask to prevent the spread of COVID. You're not around anybody else in those situations. But the mask on the top of your forehead or on your chin or hanging off the side of your face, that's really not going to help you very well. And it's not going to prevent anything that you cough or sneeze from getting into contact with somebody else. I, same, same kind of things about hand washing. If you're sort of dipping your hands in water and sort of, you know, just barely uh, uh, getting them wet, you need to vigorously rub your hands with soap and water for 20 to 30 seconds. And that can be longer than you think. If you really time that out, that's, that can be a little bit longer. But uh, you really need to do these things the correct way if you're really going to decrease the risk of transmission of the virus. So good points, Kevin. And Bob, yeah, I've seen a lot of, you know, different masks out there from different materials. Certainly a lot of people have helped out by giving the, those masks. I've got a, uh, I've got a mask uh, that I'm using right now that one of my colleagues' patients made, not necessarily in the hospital. I certainly don't use it. I use the, the, uh, the other mask if I'm seeing patients uh, in the hospital or in the clinics. But I have used that in other places to try to decrease that transmission from other people. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you live today, making your calls, questions that you have about your health or the health of somebody near and dear to you. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. And speaking of emails, we got a couple this past week. Uh, the first one is COVID related. So the question is, can family or group testing be done for COVID-19? This is an excellent question. There's different types of tests out there. So uh, there's a lot of testing within the state of Mississippi. These are similar to other states. Uh, one of the more accurate ones is uh, called reverse transcriptase PCR um, testing, so RT-PCR. And that's really looking at DNA from, or RNA rather, from the virus. So it's like the genetic material that the virus has. Uh, there is antigen testing. Antigen testing is a part of the virus that they're looking for. And then there's antibody testing. The, the most commonly use tests to see if somebody has actually has the virus, has an infection with the virus, are those first two. So it's usually that PCR or antigen testing. 
Uh, now, it, if you've been exposed to the virus, it takes about one to two weeks for those uh, for enough viral particles to be present in somebody to register as a positive test. So that's important to keep in mind. If you have that first test, let's say you're exposed on Monday and you have the test on Friday uh, of the same week, it may still be negative, even though you may have had an exposure and will develop the virus. So that's important to know uh, the timing of that. It just takes a while for that to become positive. The antibody tests are not as uh, useful yet. There are two different antibodies that they look at. There's an IgG and an IgM. IgM is usually means a recent infection, and then IgG is a long-term, uh, more longer-term antibody response uh, to the virus. Um, now, currently, um, you know, we're, in Mississippi, we've got like 96,000 tests uh, so far, so that we've, we've uh, you know, statewide by all methods. Some of those are through the health department, some of those are through hospitals and clinics, and there's a, a, there's a number of different Company, companies and tests that are used. If you have a, uh, you know, if you're a high priority patient for testing, in other words, you're in the hospital, if you're a healthcare worker uh, in, who works in, say, a nursing home or other long-term care facility or congregate living facility, if you're a first responder uh, with symptoms, and that would be cough, fever, shortness of breath, or sore throat, or if you're a resident in a long-term care facility with symptoms or a public health cluster, those are the higher risk communities and situations where you would test people. That last one, the public health cluster, that really means if you have a number of people who were together, say that you had a family reunion or you were around a lot of people in a certain place and there was two or three people that became positive. There, uh, a, an example of this was out on the West Coast. I believe it was in Washington or Oregon. There was a church who had choir practice one night. About 60 individuals were there. There was one person who had COVID-19. They did not know that. They uh, exposed others in a enclosed sort of high-risk situation. Uh, the majority of those people came down with COVID-19. Two people were hospitalized, and I believe one person died. Uh, so that would be an, a situation where everybody was um, everybody was uh, was exposed and needed to be tested. So if a family member um, has uh, a, somebody who's tested positive, what would normally be recommended is that family member be quarantined within that house, preferably in a separate room with separate bathroom facilities, if it, if at all possible, and have some limitations. Uh, about when they come out of that or people come in and out uh, to avoid exposure. Uh, there may be situations population-wise where the health department would recommend going in and testing those other family and individuals. Uh, if you'll go to the, I'm, I'm assuming this, this emailer, uh, person who emailed would, uh, is, lives in the state of Mississippi, what I would suggest doing is going to the Mississippi State Department of Health website or call them and there are some uh, links on that website if you go down to COVID-19 resources and testing that there are some numbers to call where you can be tested. A lot of these are drive-through testing so that you're not going to expose anybody if you're positive. It can be uh, pretty quick to do that, but they're going to screen you and see if you meet those criteria or you can call your healthcare professional. So whoever you see for your health, if you'll call them, and they can determine whether or not that's a situation where a whole family would need to be tested. 
Now, if you don't have any symptoms, you don't have any kind of contacts that you know of, it's not recommended for entire population testing right now that we do that. And that's just because of limits in the number of testing, even though we've ramped that up. But under those situations, particularly in those high priority situations, you may want to do testing. But I would call, I would look on the Mississippi State Department of Health website, MSD, uh, uh, let's see, M Mississippi State Department of Health, msdh.gov, uh, and they'll have some links to uh, some numbers that you can call and be screened. Uh, for I think it's msdh.ms.gov. You're right. Thank you. I knew I was missing a couple of letters in there, so all these websites are running together. All right, let's go to our first caller, Chris in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Um, so you were just recently talking about face masks. Uh, thank you for that. And I just, if you could maybe put in a, a few more words of wisdom regarding the president and the vice president not wearing masks and how, like, the implications of that, because it, to me, it's not okay. So I would like for you to, can you say a few things about that? I will, let me address it this way, Chris. I think it's important to wear masks if you're out in situations where you can't adequately predict what you're going to be exposed to and who else is going to be exposed to you. Uh, I am in a number of meetings. Most of them are uh, day in and day out as part of my administrative part of my job. Uh, most of those now have been converted uh, to, you know, to Zoom, to WebEx and other, other ways that we're not face to face. Uh, I had a meeting this morning. There were um, uh, five individuals in that meeting. We met in a room that uh, that uh, we could spread out more than six feet um, in that room. On the way to that, I wear, wore a face mask just because I don't know who I'm going to run into during the, you know, down the hallway. If I'm in an elevator, uh, if I'm in high contact with multiple people that I don't know where they've been and they don't know where I've been, I need to have a face mask on. That's the way that I would interpret that. Um, so in environments, generally speaking, if you're going to have a high degree of people coming in and out, then you need to be protecting them. Uh, you know, I, I, you certainly want to protect yourself, but it, it involves everybody doing that uh, to really gain the most protection. So um, I hope that clarifies that. Certainly, I, um, you know, I, 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 I would do that, uh, you know, in leadership positions. Certainly, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. going to speak to specifically to the president or vice president in those situations where, you know, they, they have a mask on or not. But it is important, I think, to do that in those situations where you can't maintain that distance or you're in an enclosed space, again, like an elevator or somewhere where you're not going to be able to maintain that, that social distance. So, you know, as is, as is anything, if you saw somebody, uh, have I, have I washed my hands correctly all my life? No, mm -hmm. I will confess that right now. I certainly try to do that even before this, uh, you know, certainly, uh, but if you see somebody, particularly a leader, and I would consider myself to be a leader in my institution, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's up to all leaders to really give that the best kind of example. And I don't want to be critical of anybody, but I, for me, I think it's important to do that. And it, I'm cognizant of that myself. And I think just because you see somebody slip up, like I've slipped up a bunch of times and made maybe some not so, uh, not so good uh, choices about that or hadn't thought about it in the way I, I should, um, that, 
really shouldn't give everybody a false sense of security that they don't need to do that. So hopefully that addresses that. I think face masks can help in the general population to decrease the spread of it. I'm a big advocate of that. I got my crazy boom pow onomatopoeia mask that uh, my colleague's patient made for me. So I look like something off of Batman, the old comics. Um, but uh, hey, they're fun, right? Uh, yeah. You can get all kinds of different face masks. And it's just sort of personal, too. I've been overwhelmed with the response that a lot of uh, patients have said, hey, uh, we'll make them, you know, and uh, that's been nice. So thanks, okay. Chris, for that uh, for that co- uh, comment and call uh, and question. So uh, uh, that certainly helps us to get that word out there. Let's go to our second caller now, Richard in Madison. Good morning, Richard. Hey, Dr. Jimmy. Uh, just have uh, an observation. Uh, let's look to the future a little bit and uh, to the time when we are ready to vaccinate 3 million Mississippians. Uh, do we have enough syringes? Do we have enough needles? Do we have enough swabs? Do we have the personnel to do it? And how do you prioritize all those injections? And I'll just give you a little hint. Uh, I've seen a little bit of it on the national news, how they're trying to make a plastic injectable. They just can't figure out how to put the needle on the end of the plastic. The, uh, uh, I was a, I'm an old Navy hospital corpsman, retired pharmacist, and I, I was involved with, a, uh, with mass immunizations on the ship. And at that point, we had a gun, a pressure gun that we could pump and put a multi-dose vial on a spike on the top, and we could immunize one guy after another. That's just an observation, uh, and I'd like you to speak to that. Who would be doing all this? Are we ready? Do we have the stuff? We don't want to get caught behind. Thank you, and I'll listen for you. Yeah, thank you, Richard. And uh, first of all, thank you for your service. And uh, you certainly have had, it certainly sounds like had experience with this. So vaccination development, you know, the, everybody just zooms in on, uh, are we able to, you know, develop a vaccine that's going to be uh, effective in uh, giving some immunity to people? Uh, that's what everybody sort of uh, focuses on, but you brought up a lot of other good points about that, sort of in what's you know called supply chain. Do we have the methods to to manufacture how we're going to give that? Uh, we still have other vaccinations that are out there that we that are important. Uh, we've been doing that, you know, in our clinic, particularly with kids. There have been other methods to uh, to vaccinate with materials that aren't so costly and a little bit easier to manufacture. Uh, you mentioned the pneumatic ones. For some, it really depends on the vaccine delivery and where you want it. So some vaccinations you can give subcutaneously, and that's just right under the surface of the skin. Others are intramuscular, uh, so they work better if they're deployed into the muscle, uh, so it's a little bit longer. The pneumatic delivery methods are better uh, historically for those subcutaneous, so they really can't deliver something down deeper than that, than just right underneath the skin. So it really depends on the the vaccine that's developed and where it works better. Although in the past, they certainly have gotten those, they they, a lot of different methods to use that and reuse things uh, that don't, it's not gonna put somebody at risk. We have a template for this for for different things. Certainly flu vaccination is one. 
that, uh, you know, is a yearly vaccination. A lot of other vaccine, vaccines are given in different modalities. Uh, pharmacies are one that we've shifted a lot of it. I think we can leverage that a lot more. Um, you know, we've, we've uh, shifted a lot of our vaccinations that we routinely do in the clinic to pharmacies, and those are fine. You know, my, what I usually tell my patients is, look, I don't care where you get it, just so you get it if you need it. Um, there are a lot of other methods in the past to address um, widespread epidemics of diseases, uh, measles, polio that were given in schools in the past. So, you know, we're a long way from that historically, but we do have that as a method uh, of delivery that would involve, uh, I think, a lot of planning and uh, certainly a lot of communication to communities and the nation. Uh, so that's a lot of thought process into that. Who directs all this? Uh, the CDC can provide some uh, direction to local health departments and state health departments about that. Uh, and then and from there, you can have recommendations to go out to the health community. So it is complex. Uh, a military type viewpoint of that is a good way to think about it and how you deploy that for uh, thousands and millions of people uh, to put, who potentially need to be vaccinated. One other thing before we go to break, Richard, uh, that you mentioned, uh, who gets it? The most vulnerable people generally would get it first, unless in situations like COVID, where you want to have herd immunity. So the people who might spread it easily to those high-risk individuals, it makes sense to vaccinate them too, which would include normal, healthy, young individuals who we know can get it, but and they may not have any uh, long-term effects, short-term or long-term effects that you can notice, but they could transmit it to somebody else who might be more at risk. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you today answering your questions. A lot of good questions so far. You can always call us at one mpb ring That's one 672 We're going to go to Aubrey, who is on the road. Good morning, Aubrey. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for taking my call. Um, sure. I, I, I hadn't got a lot, but <laughs> I bet everything I've got that I had this in December. Um, yep. picked, up, picked it up in a casino. Uh, from I say a tourist, I'm sure, uh, in New York, uh, and have text 
to two different people that I was terribly ill, didn't know what it was, whatever it was, I had never had it before. Uh, and of course, didn't start hearing anything about it. Uh, but I've since, of course, with all the news and everything, I have volunteered, uh, whether they'll contact me or not, for use in the survey, but uh, in the trials, but one uh, one day sooner, uh, where they are going to do human tests on the vaccine, then give you the virus. My question is, um, having had this, I wear my mask and uh, got the hand sanitizer. I drive over the road, so I'm in and out of places all the time. If I'm in inside where there's going to be people around, I'll wear the mask. Of course, driving the truck, there's no sense in wearing it. How effective are the tests for for the to see if you've had have immunity? And am I still can I still be uh, contagious? Yeah. Good questions, Harvey. So we're finding out people were, uh, you know, infected, you know, nationwide. They've tracked it back to, you know, smaller groups of people back into February and January. It's possible that, you know, and a lot of people think this, that it was probably around a little bit earlier. We just not we just didn't detect it. So it's possible that you were infected, uh, you know, as early as December. Um, now, as far as the te- I'll take the testing question first and then we'll talk a little little bit about, you know, reinfection and and how protected you are. Uh, Testing for that is a little bit different. You know, I mentioned testing at the first of the hour. Uh, It's not the same type of test as to test if you currently have it. So it's an antibody test. Now, antibodies are produced after you are exposed to something like a virus and your body makes those uh, in response and they can help protect against it. Uh, so that's yeah. one of the reasons why they, you know, why they test for that. There's multiple ways to att- to test that. The fancy name for the test is ELISA test, uh, but there's multiple ones out there, and they test for two different types of antibodies, IgM and IgG. Um, if you're positive for that, uh, you can have both false positives and false negatives. In other words, sometimes it can test positive and you never had it. Uh, and then right. the false negative would be just the opposite. You may have had the virus, but the test is actually negative. So they're not as specific about having the infection as the as the DNA or the antigen test. But if you were positive and had it, um, it really shouldn't change what you're doing right now. It sounds like you're you're taking the precautions you need to take. Uh, you can get reinfected with with coronavirus. We know that from other coronaviruses. We know it from this coronavirus that you just because you had it doesn't mean that and your antibodies are positive doesn't mean you can't be reinfected. Now, if you take flu, if you have the flu uh, virus or the vaccine, you can get the flu again, but it may not be as bad as if you weren't vaccinated or if you didn't get it. So we think this might be the same with coronavirus, but I wouldn't be lulled into a false sense of security about that. Uh, You mentioned real briefly, too, about there's a lot of research in this about serum that's pulled from people, you know, uh, to give to people who have more severe infections and maybe the antibodies may help them. Uh, That's still pretty early in development. They are looking for people to test that out. Vaccinations, though, you know, there's not any kind of vaccine trial where they're going to give you the virus. They're going to, you know, look at the the vaccine trials 
is they give high-risk people who had it uh, the vaccine, and then they see with enough numbers if it's protected, but they won't give you the virus. There's not a a, a uh, institutional review board out there that's going to approve that, uh, certainly with the risk of, of COVID-19. Um, go, on, go, but, online and look at, go online and look at one day sooner. Uh, and, of course, it is, you know, it's like I said, I don't think that, that it, they've gotten it approved in the United States, but there's over 15,000 people that are in line for it. Um, but there again, that's not – I'm more concerned with – me giving it to somebody else. I mean, if if I had it, um, can you? Can I still be? You know, which I like. I said, I'm, I drive a truck, so I'm in the truck all the time. Uh, we haven't slowed down, uh, but I, I don't want to be. It bothers me more. Uh, I mean, when I when I had it in December, I was wearing a bandana and wouldn't get around to anybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at this point, at this point, you shouldn't be infectious at all. That's far enough out that you shouldn't be. There's no way that from that infection, uh, you know, if you had it back in December, you're not going to be giving it to anybody right now. Okay, good. <laughs> That's yeah. my main concern. <laughs> yeah, rest well, assured I, that I keep. I would keep doing what you're doing, but you're not going to give it to anybody uh, that far out. It's the virus is gone. The antibodies just mean your body has developed those against the virus. Right. All right, sir. Thank you. All right. Stay safe out there. Let's go to uh, Larry in Ridgeland. Yes, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for calling. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Rick. Appreciate your show. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to describe this, but I get like a little uh, dizziness, a lightheadedness. It doesn't Uh happen every day. And it might happen, it might last for maybe 10 seconds, or it might last for 20 seconds, and then it goes away, I don't have it again. And what I'm concerned with is possible blockage of a patent, which could cause a, well, maybe a stroke or heart attack. I don't have any other symptoms, okay? But my question is, is to to check with blockages, for blockages, cholesterol in the vascular system, it could be caused by cholesterol, and it could also, to my understanding, be caused by calcium deposits. What kind of tests are available to check for cholesterol blockages in the vascular system, calcium blockages, and or is there any hospital stay involved with those tests? Yeah, good, good questions, Larry. So let me ask one question uh, before I answer that. So you mentioned dizziness. Do you mean like you feel a little lightheaded when you get up, or do you does the room spin? For those 20 no, seconds. No, no, sir, it doesn't spin. I just feel lightheaded. And it's not when I get on a bed. I mean, I could be at work. I could be just standing up at a job. I might be sitting in a chair. I may even drive in a car and this happens, but it doesn't last long. Okay. That's that's good to know. So a, a lot of stuff could be causing that. Um, there's different systems that are involved. But back to your question about if you have heart disease by narrowing of the arteries to the heart, or if you have narrowing of the arteries to your brain that might be putting you at risk for stroke, how do you test for that? What's involved? Uh, for, as far as the heart tests go, usually those are symptom related. So you mentioned one symptom of lightheadedness. The, the more common things, particularly in males, are shortness of breath, tightness in the chest, particularly with activity. Um, but everybody's a little bit different in their symptoms. So. The first step would be to have a physician, uh, you know, look at you and say, okay, tell me what symptoms are going on and then move from there. If you have enough of those symptoms and they think it's coming from your heart, 
then the next test would be a functional test of the heart itself. And there's different ones that they can do. If you're able to walk on a treadmill, sometimes a treadmill EKG is the thing to do or a stress test. There are other stress tests where they look at the heart using some uh, injectable uh, things that they, they put through your, your vein in your arm. Uh, and then they give you something that can uh, either dilate the vessels in your heart or to stress your heart a little bit by increasing your, your heart rate. Uh, if there are changes on what they see, either on the EKG with that stress test or with those other tests, uh, sometimes they combine it even with, a, with an echo. Uh, those are all outpatient tests. You don't have to be hospitalized for those. Um, but if there are some changes there, the next step would be to do a catheterization, which is usually an outpatient test where they do a cath insert a catheter, usually in the wrist now, they go all the way up to your heart. They inject some dye to look at the diameter, the interior diameter of those vessels in your heart. And if there's a blockage, a lot of times they can do something about it right then and there. So it's sort of a multi-step process, and that's because of the risk involved um, if, uh, you know, if they do the catheterization. Uh, now, the brain's a little bit different. It's a little bit harder to see that. You can do scans of those vessels to see bigger narrowing of those arteries. Again, you'd want to talk to your healthcare professional just to say, hey, I'm having these symptoms. Do I need to have uh, somebody to look at this? And usually that's like a CT scan or an MRI scan. Again, outpatient procedures that you can uh, have. But you first need to know, okay, what's your, your probability of this being the heart or the brain? And they'd want to sit down with you, do a lot more uh, questions and probably a, a thorough physical exam before they, they determine which of those tests that you need. So that would be the stepwise process uh, to do that. And of course, to treat any kind of risk factors that you have like hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, those are all things that you can do to prevent that uh, from happening. So that's where I would point you, uh, but that's sort of most, all those tests can be done outside of the hospital setting. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy answering your questions live uh, with any kind of health care issues that you are concerned about. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. I believe we have Susan still on the line from Madison. Susan, thank you for waiting patiently. Hi. I have a question. I'm 
a vulnerable adult. I'm over 70, and I've been self-isolating for about eight weeks. I only go out about once a week to run some errands and do some shopping. It's very hard to find sanitizer and disinfectant spray if you only go out once a week. So what I've been doing is putting, getting a bucket with filling it up with Dawn dishwashing detergent, a little bit of Clorox, and water. And I wipe down everything I come in contact with and, um, and myself sometimes, my hands and all. Is that just as effective as using a hand sanitizer? Yeah, Susan, that's that's uh, going to be just as effective. Uh, you know, hand sanitizers aren't perfect. Um, again, they need to have greater than 60% alcohol content. Um, they have a pretty long shelf life, but they can go bad after, you know, after a period of time. What, you, what you've put together, I think, probably would work. Certainly something with a detergent in it or soap. Uh, that helps to disrupt that uh, viral part, any viral particles your hands might come in contact with. Uh, bleach has been used as well. Um, I think that combination should be fine. Um, and wiping down any kind of surfaces that might have come into contact. Now, if you're the only person in your house and you're just going in and out, you know, you can still do that at home. But really, it's when you go out and come into contact with something and then come back home. You just want to make sure your hands are clean uh, and anything that you've come into contact with. So you wouldn't need to re-wipe down everything. It's just what you have come in contact with. Uh, right. Masks are, yeah, and masks are important too. I think I would, but really think of things, this is a person to person contact, right? So that's the main way that this is transmitted right now. Um, and any kind of contact with surfaces that people have come into contact with. So if you have that kind of mindset and avoid those with distance, that is the most important thing you can probably do and the easiest thing you can do. It's just when you have to touch different things, just keep that in mind. It's not going to get through, unless you have a cut on your hands, it's not going to get through your skin into the body, but it's just important after you touch those things, that you do wash your hands after that. So uh, just keep that in mind and, and keeping that distance between you and somebody else. It sounds like you got a pretty good method going on right now. And um, the, the, CD, the CDC website, if you have internet access, they have, um, they have a pretty good uh, section on uh, home san uh, uh, sanitization uh, techniques and things that you can use and make. So they have some sort of recipes, if you want to call them, of, of some different substances that you can use to disinfect. Disinfectants, I said home sanitation. I probably changed the word to something that's a made-up word, but uh, really disinfectants is, is on their website is what you should look at. Well, and, and staying home is what I'm mainly doing, but a lot of times friends will drop things off or Saturday I was in my garage and a friend came and walked right in my garage without a mask. You know, so it's that kind of thing that I use my little recipe for. You know, when somebody does that, then I wipe everything down. Yeah, I and think I that's fine. And I just wondered if it was effective enough. Yeah, it sounds like that's going to be effective with what you're using, but check out the CDC's website.
they may have some other things on there too that you can sort of come up with and have your own concoction. Um, but I would say be careful. You know, sometimes it can be caustic on your hands. Uh, it sounds like what you have probably isn't, but particularly stronger bleach solutions. A lot of people are having reactions to that or will dry out their hands or they'll have a chemical burn even. Uh, certainly you want to watch out for that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, Susan, stay safe out there. Thank you for calling. You too. Bye-bye. We did have a caller that had to go, but they had a question about N95 masks. So N95 masks are uh, usually for health professionals or used in, the, uh, in other professions. So they filter out about 95% of the particles uh, that, uh, that you're exposed to in the air. They're close fitting around the nose and around the chin. Uh, so they're form fitting. But what's the shelf life was the question of those. So if you have an N95 mask, they all should have uh, expiration dates or production date on there. They're generally good for five years after that production date. Now, that is if they're not out in the open, uh, you know, if they're in uh, extreme heat environments. If you've got it in your truck or your car for long periods of time, the particles that are made uh, that they use to make the mask or even the elastic straps may break down and it's not going to be effective. But generally speaking, that's about five years from that production date. Um, another question that frequently comes up is, well, how long can I use that for a, a period of time? Generally speaking, they can be used for multiple hours throughout the day, but usually they have a shelf life, uh, not a shelf life, a life after you begin using them of about eight hours. So after that, uh, we wouldn't recommend um, we wouldn't recommend uh, using it any longer than that. Uh, but certainly that can be something that you can use. Again, we're trying to hold those, uh, you know, for, for, for healthcare workers, first responders to use those. Uh, but that's, that's, you know, the answer to the question is about five years after that production date. Dr. Jimmy, got about a minute and a half left. When we talk about the cloth masks that a lot of us are wearing, um, what about maintaining those? How often maybe should we throw those in the washing machine and to, to wash them? Yeah, if you're using them on a daily basis, I'd say at the end of the day, when you come home, go ahead and just wash them. Uh, it's sort of nice that they're, you know, made out of those materials. You don't have to do anything special about washing it, um, uh, you know, with a detergent that you would normally use. Certainly that's that's good enough to use in the washing machine with either warm or hot water uh, to keep those clean. But particularly if you're out and about, you're going to get exposed to different things throughout the day. It's probably best to uh, to wash those daily after those exposures uh, to things. And that's sort of the nice thing about that. Other masks, uh, loose fitting uh, non-cloth mask, uh, you know, about a week's time period is about what you can do. Again, it sort of depends on how often you're wearing it. Uh, and it might be good to you know, take those off. I would say I've seen kids with these on. I was able to get out to the reservoir last week and do some kayaking and social distancing and detoxing of different things uh, for, for my health. Um, I saw some kids with these on, less than two years of age, not recommended that they have a mask on. It's just, and that's mainly the health of the, of the child. Uh, it can be a little bit dangerous with putting a mask on uh, on an individual that, that young. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself? Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.